Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, listeners. Happy New Year to you, and welcome back to the Underwood and Flinch podcast. It's great to be back, and it's great to have you back with me. If you're listening to this podcast soon after its release in January 2023 and have forgotten what happened in Season 3, then stop listening to this now and go to the recap episode I posted right before this podcast in the feed. Uh, I made that so everybody else, uh, the people listening in the future who have come to this episode directly from Season 3 and don't need a recap episode, can just go straight into the story which we will do in just a moment. But first, uh, I want to take a moment to offer a word of thanks to all my patrons at Patreon, past and present, for their support in the creation of this story that you are about to listen to. At Patreon, this episode forms part of the 60-episode epic Underwood and Flinch Underground, which was written and recorded between August 2015 and January 2020, entirely as a result of the support of my patrons, without whom I would surely have given up writing and podcasting in 2015. So, a million thanks to them, and a hearty huzzah! Huzzah! And of course, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to join my patrons and plug yourself into the entirety of Underwood and Flinch Underground for as little as $3 a month, or your local currency equivalent, all you need to do is Google Mike Bennett Patreon or follow the links at my websites and then just sign up. But, as I always say, my advice to you is to wait until the start of the month before doing so, because Patreon charge you when you sign up for the month you sign up in and then again at the start of every month thereafter. So if you wait till the beginning of the month, then you will get a whole month of listening for your three bucks, or local currency equivalent. Oh, incidentally, that $3 subscription level for the Underwood and Flinch content is current as of now, January 2023. If you're listening at some time in the future, it may have gone up. Or indeed, I may have left Patreon altogether. Who knows? But that is the way things are today. So... With that said then, let's get back to Underwood and Flinch. And we don't return to the story in that hotel room in London where season three ended. Oh no, no, we go back in time. Back to the stairs leading up to the nightclub rooftop at the end of season one. Remember? The place is surrounded by police, the sun is up, and there is no way out of there for a couple of vampires like Underwood and Lydia. So, Underwood gathers the terribly wounded Lydia up into his arms and ascends the stairs to the rooftop 
fire exit, which is where we come in. Underwood and Flinch Season 4 Underground Written and performed for podcast by Mike Bennett This podcast is intended for an adult audience Episode 1 Close your eyes, Angel. Underwood's foot on the crash bar, the blazing light around the door widening, expanding, filling the stairwell. Lydia closed her eyes and turned her face to his chest as the world burst into flames. She screamed as agony consumed her. She felt her back and legs ignite. Skin, hair, clothes, all seized in searing white pain. He was still walking, still walking out into the fire. She lashed out with her arms and legs, trying to break free, but Underwood's grip on her tightened, crushing her to his burning body. Her face buried in his chest, she screamed, her last, agonised, terrified scream that ended with the smoke from their burning flesh filling her nose and mouth. She inhaled, coughing but still instinctively trying to breathe the searing air. It was over. She held him, despite the flames that burned them, breathing the smoke, feeling herself at last slipping mercifully away. But then she felt herself slip. Underwood's embrace was weakening. Hold on to him. A strangely calm inner voice beckoned from beyond her pain. It's almost over now. But then another voice, one from the howling black centre of her pain, one she recognised as her own, screamed infinitely louder. Fuck that! Run! Fight! His arms barely holding her now, she twisted away and fell from him. Managing to get a foot down beneath her, she felt her shoe disintegrate under her weight, as now, with her other foot down, she blindly launched herself into a loping stumble back in the direction she thought they had come from. It couldn't be far, little more than a few metres and she would be back in the stairwell. All of her was ablaze now. She knew it, but blocked it from her thoughts as she staggered on, arms outstretched, groping for the doorway. But it wasn't there. She swung her arms, clawing at nothingness. A leg buckled beneath her. She caught herself and staggered a few steps more. But it was hopeless. Her body had given her one last chance, tapped a final reserve of vampiric strength and adrenaline to try and propel her to safety. But now she felt it leave her. She stopped and stood for a moment, her heart finally beaten, as the fire ate her alive. Then she let herself fall, tumbling into the void, away from the inferno 
and down into the cold embrace of death. Voices. Spanish voices. A man and a woman. Talking about a birthday party at the weekend. Sergeant Mendez, Nacho, they liked him, a friend. His party, he didn't know about it. They were going to throw Nacho a surprise party in a bar near the station on Friday night. The woman was saying her shift didn't finish till 11. The man saying that was okay. She might miss the surprise, but the night would still only just be starting. Was this the afterlife? Was this heaven? Lydia tried to open her eyes and felt waves of sharp pain as what remained of the muscles that worked her eyelids strained. Did she have eyelids? Did she even have eyes? She tried to raise her hands, and the flesh of her arms that had started healing tore softly, and she choked back a scream. Her hands touched a smooth, solid surface only inches in front of her. Despite the pain, she felt around it. The surface was warm, hard plastic. Its area covered her body completely, though the warm breeze she could feel around her told her she was not enclosed. Then, more pain signals started lighting up all over her body as she came back to full consciousness. The ground beneath her was cold and hard, digging into her raw, burned flesh, and again she fought back the urge to scream. She reached out in the opposite direction from where she'd heard the voices and touched a wall. She reached up into the space beyond her head and touched a small wheel. Then she noticed the smell, the heavy stink of trash. It was all around her, hanging in the air like an all-pervading funk. She wasn't in heaven. She was under a commercial wheelie bin. She felt a fly land on her nose, as if to congratulate her on her powers of deduction. Her hands reached up and gingerly touched her chest to explore the shotgun wound. But it was gone. It had healed. But the rest of her, practically every inch of the surface of her body, was far from healed. She needed more time, and more than that, she needed blood. Her mind refocused, reaching out with all her senses toward the nearby voices. They had moved away, but she could hear other voices, many, many voices farther away. They seemed to come from the direction beyond her head. In the other direction beyond her feet, it was much quieter. There was sound, traffic, distant voices, but muted and remote, as if a wall or barrier lay between her and them. A sense of where she was began to come to her. She must have fallen off the roof, down into an alleyway at the side of the building, and somehow, though she had no idea how, had managed to get under this bin and out of sight. 
and more importantly, out of the sun. But how? Surely no one had helped her. Or had they? Something her father had used to tell her, bedtime stories of Underwood's adventures, something in them glinting like a diamond in the rough. There was a god, a spirit that Underwood had once believed he was possessed by, something to do with voodoo or Africa. Then she remembered. Vampire, god of death. He'd saved Underwood when he'd been falling, turned him into a bat. But obviously there was no god spirit, no vampire. That was just a primitive mysticism used to explain the then inexplicable. But Arthur had also told her about a survival mechanism, an unconscious override that changed the vampire's form in times of extreme crisis. So was that what had happened to her? Had she turned into a bat and flown under here to this shelter? But she'd been blind, burning, and her heart, surely it hadn't had enough strength left to perform such a transformation. And yet she was here. Then she heard the sharp crackle and tinny chatter of a police radio farther up the alley beyond her head. She focused her senses. Footsteps. One person moving slowly, sounds of things being moved, inspected, and then, despite the cloying smell of trash all around her, a whiff of perfume on the breeze. Lydia recognised it as classique, and wrinkled her nose, painfully, in contempt. It was a female police officer. The man must have gone off and left her to search the alley alone once they'd checked there were no obvious threats in it. Should have checked harder, she thought. She'd need to get her attention. She was about to call out, but when her lips, sealed shut by scabbing, were parted, she instead gave a sincere cry of pain. Immediately she heard the cop's shoes shift on the tarmac in response. Lydia reached out a hand from under the wheelie bin to grope at the air for attention. Then the cop came running. Lydia heard her stop beside the bin, then a moment later, preceded by a rush of classique, the anxious voice of the police officer sounded close to her ear. Tios mia! In Spanish, the policewoman told her that everything was going to be all right. They had ambulances on site. She would fetch one immediately. No, said Lydia. She groped for the policewoman and caught hold of her shirt. In Spanish, she said in a voice, thin, raspy and desperate, Please, it's too late. I won't make it. I need to confess, to confess myself before I die. Please hear me, my last confession. She could sense the conflict in the policewoman, so she squeezed her arm. The pain it caused her own hand was enough to fill her voice with sincere agony. Please, I beg you. Senora, I am not a priest, said the policewoman. I don't care. I must unburden my soul. I have done things here, tonight, in this place. 
I have killed men. Please, please hear me. She coughed and continued in a more enfeebled voice, barely a whisper. I killed them. Then she heard the policewoman getting down beside her. Senor, I can't hear you. Can you speak louder? Lydia reached out and touched the woman's face. She was young. Her skin was smooth, unlined. I killed, she said. Killed who, senora? Who did you kill? Lydia could feel tremors running through the policewoman as she fumbled with something. She heard the tap of nails against a phone pad. She was probably going to try to record the conversation. Smart move. She reached behind the policewoman's head and feebly drew the woman's ear close to her mouth. Then she croaked, You... The tapping stopped. What? Lydia smacked the woman's head down on the tarmac, hard enough to stun, but not to kill. Then she seized the woman's head with both hands and pulled her under the wheelie bin. After feeding, Lydia lay aglow with blood. She was still exhausted, and every cell of her body cried out at her to sleep, but she knew that to do so would be fatal. The policewoman, who now lay dead beside her, would soon be missed by her colleagues. It wouldn't take them long to find her. Lydia had crushed the crackling police radio in her hand as she fed. She now wondered if simply turning it off might have been the wiser move, but at the time... She hadn't been thinking straight. So now, fighting her body's need to sleep, she simply lay, feeling her body healing. It was like pins and needles, the feeling one gets when a limb deprived of blood circulation has the blood flow restored to it. But this was all over the surface of her body. The darkness before her eyes began to change too, paling at its centre to a dimly glowing redness. Slowly, very slowly, the redness spread until it was all she could see, as though she were looking at a bright sky through closed eyelids. She flexed her fingers and clenched her fists, feeling the soft beginnings of new nails. She licked her lips, and the scabbing came away on her tongue, she spat it aside and licked again, and this time her tongue touched soft, fresh skin. She couldn't suppress a gasp of joy. Then the redness of her eyes began to pale. She blinked. She had eyelids again, though her eyes were wet with a sticky goo. She resisted the urge to wipe them. Instead, she closed them again and let that milky pink ooze continue to do its work. Sleep still tried to pull her down, and to keep herself alert, her hand began exploring the policewoman's clothes, feeling for anything of use. A gun, that was certainly handy. A phone, even more so. With further groping, she quickly ascertained that the woman was more or less her size. She decided... She'd take everything. 
she began blindly undressing her. It was difficult in the confined space, but she soon had the shirt undone and the belt and trousers opened. She shifted and nearly screamed as the raw, unfinished skin of her shoulder scraped against the ground. It was no good. She couldn't manoeuvre the body under here. She'd have to drag it out. She opened her eyes again. She could see a brightness, light. She blinked and blinked again. Then she wiped her eyes with her hands, clearing them of gunk. She could see shapes, shades, but had no focus. It was like she was under water. But she could see enough. She could see that the alley was still in deep shadow. The sun must be directly on the other side of the building. Beyond her feet, in the other direction, the shadow was denser, suggesting a wall or building. She focused her hearing back in the direction from which the policewoman had come, and light glowed. There were voices beyond the mouth of the alley, but none echoing within it. So, carefully, Lydia inched out from under the side of the wheelie bin, wincing at the pain of her shifting contact with the ground. Then she was clear. Crouching, she moved down to the end of the bin and took the policewoman by the heels. She dragged her out and quickly finished undressing her. Five painful minutes later, Lydia was dressed. As she buckled up the cop's belt, she looked around. Her vision was better now, shapes and outlines sharper, but still murky, subaqueous. She saw the cop's cap by the side of the wheelie bin and went over to get it. She bent to pick it up and placed it on her head, feeling as she did so the soft, fuzzy beginnings of new hair growing back across her scalp. Then, by her foot, she noticed something else. She squatted down for a closer look and saw it was a pair of glasses. One of the lenses was cracked, but she tried them on all the same. She looked up and the world came into focus. That was good, but what her eyes revealed to her wasn't. There was no way out of the alley. At one end, the bright end, was La Fantasia's car park, while at the darker end there was indeed a high wall. There was a door in the wall, which presumably led to the street side of the building, but one glance at the bottom of it showed a line of glowing bright fire. She looked around at the walls on either side. They were sheer and led up to a cloudless blue sky. There were windows, but none on the ground floors. She could never climb up to the higher ones, and even if she could, the rooms inside were probably bristling with police. In despair, she looked down, and about ten feet away, she saw a manhole cover. Oh, no, no way. No way? It was the only way. She walked over to the manhole. There were two small holes at the edge of the cover. She put her fingers into them and lifted it up. Inside was a drain, only a few feet deep and a few feet wide. Water trickled over the brown smeared pipe within. She could fit into it, and there would be room to elbow her way down to wherever it went. But Christ... She turned her face away, wishing she still had only a human sense of smell. There was nothing for it. She had no choice. 
She went back to the wheelie bin and rolled it down so that it covered the cop's body, then went back to the manhole. She was about to climb down inside when a man's voice called to her from the top of the alley in Spanish. Sonia, what's happening? Why don't you answer your call? Lydia froze. She had to respond, or things would get ugly, fast. She turned, slowly, keeping her face down, and her hat tipped forward against the glow of light from behind the now-approaching policeman. She made a dismissive gesture and called, Radio's playing up. The guy didn't reply. Lydia didn't dare look up. She turned back to the manhole and hunkered down as if she were checking out something inside the drain. She knew she bore a passing physical resemblance to the policewoman, but would that be enough? The policewoman had had her hair tied up under her hat, but Lydia was practically bald. At a distance, it mightn't be noticeable, but if her partner got much closer, she was going to have a problem. She had to act. She got to her feet and walked back towards the wheelie bin. Sonia, the man called, his voice closer. Hang on, I, I dropped something. She went to the end of the bin and stepped out of sight. Then, crouching behind the bin, she drew the baton from her belt. Sonia, what is it? Oh my God, Lydia cried. Come quick. She heard his footsteps hasten. Then his feet came into view. She looked up to see his expression of shocked realisation. She fixed his eyes with hers, paralysing him, then stood up. Take off your hat. He stared at her, speechless. I said, take off your hat. Numbly, he did as she commanded. Lydia looked down to the end of the alley. There was no one else hanging around. She returned her attention to his eyes. When you wake up, if you wake up, you will have no memory of me. He said nothing, but that was fine with Lydia. He didn't need to. She swung the baton and struck his head a savage blow. He crumpled to the ground in a heap. She returned the baton to her belt and shoved his body under the bin. Then she hurried back to the manhole before another one of Malaga's finest came looking for their fallen comrades. She climbed down into the sewer. She wanted to go in the direction of the main road, so she had to sit down so that her legs and feet were aiming against the water flow. She winced as the sewer water filled her trousers, then reached for the manhole cover before drawing it halfway over the hole. Then... Taking a last gulp of clean air, she lay down in the drain and pulled the cover closed over her. The water trickled through her clothes and around her neck and head. She lay for a moment, acclimatising herself to the confined space, then, breathing through her mouth to cut out the stench, she rolled over in the pipe so that she was lying on her front. Then... Using her elbows and toes, she began to shuffle forwards. The water helped, and the surface of the pipe was slippery all around. What it was slippery with, however, was something that didn't bear thinking about.
After what felt like an eternity, but was probably closer to ten minutes, Lydia came to the end of the drain she'd been crawling through. She emerged into a larger, wider sewer that she was able to stand up in, which she did to her great relief. Her police uniform was soaking wet and besmeared with excrement and a vile yellow fat, the coagulated and solidified residue of what householders and restaurants routinely tip down their kitchen sinks. Mercifully, her nose had become so accustomed to the stench that she no longer noticed it. She looked around, trying to get her bearings. The tunnel she stood in was egg-shaped, the ceiling wider than the floor. It was as wide as her outstretched arms, and when she reached up she could place her hand flat on the ceiling. She wondered where exactly she was in relation to the nightclub. When she'd got into the sewer she'd set off in the direction of the street in front of the club. This sewer crossed the smaller one from which she'd emerged like a letter T, so she concluded that she must now be under the main street in front of the club. She listened. Sure enough, from above she could hear the drone of traffic. But which way should she go now? Did it matter? She had to stay down here until nightfall, and that was a whole day away. But she had to keep moving. She'd just killed two cops, and if their colleagues figured out that she'd made her escape via the sewer, they'd be after her, and their search would almost certainly begin right here. She looked down to check the direction of the water flow. She stood ankle-deep in a foul sludge over which a thin trickle of water flowed. If she was right about being under the main road, the water was flowing southwest, downtown. That was as good a direction as any. She started walking, the mud oozing into and sucking at her shoes as she went. The sewer ran for what felt like miles before it joined a much larger tunnel. This one was high and wide and resembled a subterranean canal, with two paved banks either side of a shallow river of sewage. Unlike the aged brick walls of the previous tunnel, this was newer, all concrete. Lydia took it as a good sign, and, still racked with exhaustion, she allowed herself a rest— She'd been listening intently for any sounds of pursuit, but there had been none. She sat down with her back to a wall and looked up and down the tunnel. Pale sunlight filtered in from various points where the tops of the walls met the ceiling. Street drains, she concluded. That would also account for the fresher air. Her eyes itched unbearably, and she wanted to rub them, but one look at the filth on her hands told her that was a very bad idea. Instead, she closed them and felt instantly better. When she next opened her eyes, Lydia immediately noticed the light from the drains had changed. It was paler, strangely yellow. Street lighting. She sniffed, scenting the air. It was cooler fresher. It was night time. She'd slept all through the day. She looked at her hands, rubbing them together and flaking away the caked filth to see the skin beneath had now completely healed. She touched her face, her lips. It was the same. It was as if she'd never been damaged at all. 
Her hands went to her scalp, and her fingers sank into thick hair that had grown back to the same length it had been before it was burned away. And it was clean, too, the only part of her that was. She laughed out loud and clapped her hands with joy. The sound startled her companions. She heard a squeak close to her feet. She looked down to see a group of six or seven rats staring at her. She screamed and leapt to her feet. Get away! Get away! She stamped a foot at them, and the rats scattered in different directions. She shuddered and hugged herself. Oh, my God! So bloody disgusting! I have to get the fuck out of this place! And not just because of the company. She was hungry, ravenous. The rats' bodies seemed to glow with warmth and life, but she'd had enough hardship for one day without resorting to eating vermin. She started walking hurriedly in the direction of the waterflow, grimacing at the squelching in her shoes and trying hard not to think of what was doing the squelching. After a short distance, she came to a ladder of solid metal rungs set into the concrete. They ran up to a circular shaft, at the end of which she could see a manhole. Relief flooded her, and she briskly scaled the ladder. At the top, she listened. Traffic, many voices, music. But was she in the centre of the road, or under the pavement? Her question was answered when the manhole resonated with a single footfall. Without another thought, she pushed the manhole up and aside, and climbed up and out. On emerging, she could sense the eyes of the people around her, hear their remarks of surprise, but she kept her eyes down, behaving as if what she was doing was perfectly natural. She was a police officer after all, perfectly reasonable for a police officer to have been down in a sewer. She dragged the manhole cover back into place and gave it a cursory tap with her foot to make sure it had settled nicely. Then she straightened up, and looked around for a clue as to where she was, ignoring the open-mouthed expressions of onlookers. Then she saw a restaurant she knew, and smiled. Very good, she announced in Spanish. Happy now, she met the eyes of some of the pedestrians who were gawping at her. What's the matter with you? she demanded in Spanish. You've never seen a policewoman in a sewer before? Go on about your business. Nothing to see here. She shooed them away, straightening her shirt, then struck out across the road before anyone asked any questions. She had to get home. She had to feed. The principal obstacle to both of these goals was that she stank to high heaven. While eau de raw sewage was a perfume guaranteed to turn heads, it didn't do so favourably. Everyone passing her on the street was looking at her in either horror, amusement or disgust. She was getting far too much attention. People would remember her, and it was only a matter of time before someone tried to take a sneaky picture with their phone. Maybe they'd even tweet it to their pals with the hashtag #stinkingpig. She had to get out of here fast. No taxi would take her, even if she was in a police uniform. But then she remembered her new power of persuasion. All she needed to do was stop a car, and that power would circumvent any driver's abhorrence to having shit all over his back seats. She looked up and down the flow of traffic. A taxi for hire was approaching. 
She waved it down in the no-nonsense manner of a serious police officer. The car stopped, and she approached the driver's window as if she were about to reprimand him for something. The guy's window was already down. He was a short, shabby-looking man in his forties or fifties, unshaven, with a flat cap on a thatch of greasy hair. "'See?' he said, tapping his cigarette out of the window. Lydia bent down and fixed his eyes before he could get a whiff of her. "'Hola!' She watched his expression slacken. Then, in Spanish, she told him to switch off his for-hire light. She'd be taking him for the whole night. She got in the back and captured his eyes in the rear-view mirror, giving him the address of her Malaga villa and telling him to take the quickest possible route. Though the driver's gaze was fixed and glassy, his face seemed sad, almost on the verge of tears, as he replied, "'Okay, but please, the smell, I can't breathe!' Lydia noticed an air freshener dangling from his rear-view mirror, along with a crucifix and a string of rosary beads. She leaned forward, snatched them down, and stuffed the air freshener into the pocket of his shirt. "'There, now everything smells of roses. Get going.' They drove to her villa, parking on the drive. Lydia opened her door. "'Come with me.' She got out and walked up to her house with the driver following her obediently. She went to the last of a series of potted plants and lifted it to reveal a spare key. She went back to the door and let herself in. The driver waited at the door. She turned and called to him. Well, come in, for God's sake, and shut the door behind you. The driver did as he was told. She led the way down the corridor to the kitchen. She went to a cupboard under the sink and took out a roll of refuse sacks. She tore one off and shook it open, then began stripping off her stinking clothes and stuffing them into it. She saw the driver watching her. She smiled, wondering what, if anything, might be going on inside his enslaved mind. Once she was undressed, she led him back down the corridor to the bathroom. She sat on the toilet for a pee and pointed to the bathtub. Get into the bath and sit down, and then do me a favour and wash your neck. I will use the blue shower gel, will you? Not the white one. The blue gel had been Beltran's for whenever he'd stayed over. Should I undress? he asked. I don't care, said Lydia, before adding, No, actually, take your shirt off and wash your armpits too. I know my part's in no condition to be calling your kettle black, but believe me, there's not much between us in the stink stakes, darling. The driver removed his shirt and then got into the bath and turned on the taps before sitting down, still wearing his trousers and shoes. She watched as he washed himself, savouring the control she was exerting over her fierce desire to feed, calmly sitting and waiting while the man rubbed his grimy neck with a loofah. Her finger went to her mouth, an unconscious impulse she sometimes had when she was thinking— she winced at the smell from her hand and pulled it away. She went to the wash basin and filled it with hot water, washing her hands with soap and scrubbing at the skin and nails with a nail brush. When her skin was red and stinging to the point that she had to stop, she sniffed them. Beneath the perfume of the soap, the ghost of the sewer still lingered, but it was much better than it had been. She dried her hands and turned back to the taxi driver, who was still washing himself like a man in a dream. "'That'll do,' she said. 
She went over and sat on the edge of the bath. She pushed his head to one side, exposing his neck. It was clean. She bent down, brushing her lips against the wet skin, tracing the pulse of his artery. And then she bit down. His blood rushed into her mouth, filling it in seconds. She swallowed and opened her mouth, letting the flow from the punctured artery wash over her lips and tongue, and then spill down onto the man's body. Then she climbed in on top of him, pushing him down into the bath and relishing the sight of his blood as it spurted out onto the side of the tub and ran down to stain the water that swirled beneath him. She embraced him, closing her mouth over the wound and caressing his body, stroking the hair on his chest, slick and slippery, cupping and squeezing his soft man-breasts, feeling him move against her, responding to her even as his life was drained out of him. She reached down and cupped his crotch, squeezing it, feeling the energy there and knowing with every swallow she was consuming it. She then felt such a surge of pleasure and power that she had to break off from him and let a laugh escape her. She gasped for breath and looked down at her prize. The flow of blood from the wound was weaker now, spilling from him in gentle pulses. She turned his face to her. His cheeks had grown concave, his complexion pale, and his lips an ashen grey. She cocked her head on one side, watching the blood pulsing out of him, weaker and weaker. Then she laid her head on his chest and listened to the dying rhythm of his heart, a smile on her face and her fingers playing in his belly hair as he slowly sank down to death. And so, our curtain falls on episode one, with Lydia playing with her food. Right now, she's a long way from her meeting with Inspector Redmond. How that road rises to meet her, and the corpses that lie in the ditches at its sides, are things we are yet to learn. But learn them we will, listeners as our journey continues underground. The music you're listening to is Ahmad Armour by Farid Farjad, courtesy of Tarane Records, specialists in Persian music. The track can be bought online from taranayrecords.com and iTunes, and now is also available to stream on Spotify. And other music on the podcast came from Kevin McLeod. And you can find out more about Kevin and more of his music at incomptech.com. Well, there we are. Lydia's journey from roof to bin, from bin to sewer, from sewer to taxi driver for dinner, to you. And I hope you enjoyed it. Obviously, as I said there at the end, we've still got a way to go in Lydia's journey, but we've also got a way to go in the Demo and Rose story before they catch up with David's current predicament. But all of these things will unfold in time.
Now, during the course of that episode, you may have noticed those Spanish voices in the background as Lydia was coming out of her sort of healing coma thing. And for those voices, I would like to extend my great thanks to long-term listener, patron and sect member Paco and his wife, Micah. Thank you so much for doing that for me. I could have tried to do it myself, but somehow I don't think it would have sounded anywhere near uh, as authentic And I'd go so far as to say it would probably have sounded rubbish. But anyway, thanks to Paco and Micah, a big huzzah for you. Huzzah! (laughs) Ah, Anyway, that's all for me for this particular episode of Underwood and Flinch. Thank you for listening. But for me for now, until the moon rises again over Underwood and Flinch, farewell.